Welcome to Abundant Life. It's great to have you with us today and a very special welcome to the Sandy campus, the Vancouver campus, and those of you who are watching online. I'm thankful for your presence. I'm even more thankful for air conditioning. Okay, do I hear an amen? Okay, that's better. Just making sure you're with me. We're continuing our series called Upside Down, Teaching That Changed Everything, and we're focusing on the Beatitudes, and today I want to look at the attitude that might be the most upside down one of all. I heard a story about a group of Hell's Angels that went to a truck stop, and they walked into the restaurant, and there in the corner was a truck driver minding his own business, eating his dinner by himself, and one of the Hell's Angels walked up to him and took the truck driver's plate of spaghetti and dumped it on his head. The truck driver didn't say anything or do anything, and so he took his glass of beer and poured the beer in his lap. Truck driver got up, didn't say a word, went and paid his bill and left. The hell's angel turned to the bartender and said, wasn't much of a man, was he? The bartender said, not much of a truck driver either. He just ran over 12 Harleys on his way out of here. (laughs) Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Yeah, he didn't say blessed are the passive-aggressive. But see, on the face of that, what Jesus said sounds ridiculous. Because we live in a world that's governed by the use of power and force. We're conditioned to push our way to get ahead and to scramble over others to get to the top. When the meek inherit the earth, some bully's just going to take it away from them. If you look up the word meek in a thesaurus, you'll find words like, synonyms like, Docile, mild, calm, gentle, peaceful, tame, submissive, soft, spineless, passive. Phrases listed that illustrate meekness include to eat dirt, to lick the dust, to be a doormat. See, those aren't words typically you want to use on a resume. Oh, I'm docile and passive. See, in business, in politics, in sports, in war, it's the strong, it's the powerful and mighty that get ahead. So what does Jesus mean by this word meek? Why does it matter that we take on meekness? Why are you blessed if you're meek? Well, first things first, we have to understand what Jesus is not saying. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the wimps and the wusses, for they will inherit the, the earth. Make no mistake about it, meekness is not weakness. That's not what Jesus is saying. Here's the problem, though. The root word in the original Greek conveys an entirely different meaning than what our modern dictionaries translate. Because here is the classic definition of the word meek. It means power under control. Now, it's used for an animal when it's tamed. Not a dog or a cat or a chicken, but an animal that has power that is strong and mighty like a horse or a lion or a velociraptor. No, wait, that's Jurassic World, not the Bible. But the horses and lions are powerful. Untamed, they're they're fearsome. See, here's the deal. Out of control, power is dangerous. But under control, it can be used for good. It's, It's helpful. And those who are involved in martial arts understand this concept, power under control. It's someone who could kick your butt but restrains and is under control. I think of Mr. Miyagi on The Karate Kid, for example, as power under control. So let's take a look at the qualities of meekness then to continue getting our handle on what it's about. First is power. That's the default setting of meekness. 
Again, it's not what you typically think. But see, from the beginning, God gave the human race power and authority. Humans did not create the earth, but we were given a responsibility to take care of it and to be stewards of it in Genesis 1. Fast forward to Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. God said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. So even God stands up and takes notice when the human race as a collective entity starts to work together. Nothing they do will be impossible for them. See, we've been given a degree of power and authority by God. Now, that, this power is not ultimate. That's reserved for God. We're not almighty, but we do have a measure of power. And if you're a believer in Christ, you have access to another source of power. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. See, as a follower of Christ, you have a unique power source. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and it's been granted to us. But see, the problem we have with power is so much of the death and destruction that has fallen upon the human race as a direct result of this abuse of power and the lust for power. My understanding is that you know, many scholars estimate that 100 million people in the 20th century, 100 million people were killed at the hands of their own governments. That is a mind-boggling statistic, 100 million, far more than World War I, World War II, all the wars combined in the 20th century. Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, they're responsible for the deaths of many more people than Adolf Hitler ever dreamed of. On a religious note, more believers, more followers of Christ were martyred for their faith in the 20th century than the previous 19th centuries combined. Again, governments can be notoriously paranoid about losing their power. And Jesus demands allegiance, and so Jesus can be a threat to governments that seek total power and control. Our Constitution is written with checks and balances precisely to avoid the abuse of power. My wife and I recently visited our missionaries in Cambodia, Jeff and Chani Rasmussen. And the low light of that trip was I got pooped on by a gecko lizard. You know, I was just minding my own business. We're talking to Jeff and Chani. We're under this thatched roof hut on the beach. And all of a sudden, I saw this green stuff on my arm, and it wasn't split pea soup. And it was like, a gecko just pooped on my arm. It's like the story of my life. But one of the highlights was getting to meet Chani's father, who survived the genocide of the Khmer Rouge and the regime of Pol Pot in Cambodia. He said he was 17 years old at the time and his dad was in the military. His dad was one of the first people killed by Pol Pot. Uh, his dad was on his way to visit the president. He had to lay down his arms and Pol Pot ambushed him with a group of child soldiers and gunned him down. He said it was a miracle that he survived the genocide. His, his family was given one cup of rice per day to eat. And uh, he feels like his life was only spared when the Vietnamese army came in and put a stop to things and, and ended the bloodshed. But to this day, you'll be hard-pressed to find anybody above 60 years of age in that country. An entire generation was wiped out. The, the skilled workers, the educated, the teachers, the leaders, the nation is still recovering from that. And I, when I heard that, I thought, wouldn't it be great if God took power away from someone once it started getting abused. 
Like when Adolf Hitler started to become a hater, God said, nope, not going to do it, and took him out. See, that's not how it works. There is tremendous power in freedom of choice, the power to choose love and good, or the power to abuse and to, and to, to perpetuate violence. And see, that's why, at the end of the day, power without character is dangerous. Meekness is all about character. And so that's what makes the next quality of meekness so vital. And it is this, it is brokenness. Now, what I mean by this is brokenness as a result of being broken before God. Jesus began the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, their spiritual poverty. They're not all that spiritually. And then he continues, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn for their sin. And now Jesus says, blessed are the meek. The idea is submitting our will to God's will. And Saul of Tarsus is exhibit A in the New Testament. He became known as the Apostle Paul. But before he met Jesus, Saul was brilliant, he was talented, he was driven, he was a classic type A personality. But when God got a hold of Saul, he didn't change his personality, but Saul needed to be, get his life under submission. He needed to be trained. And so just outside Damascus, that's Damascus, Syria, not Damascus, Oregon, but outside Damascus, Syria, God struck Paul down and blinded him with a bright light. And Saul said, who are you, Lord? He acknowledged that whoever did this to him had power and authority over him. And he heard a voice saying, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And then Jesus said this in Acts 26, verse 14. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I want you to circle that word goads. When a farmer trained oxen to pull a plow or a cart, goads were spikes that were placed right behind the animal because oxen don't always want to obey. And so when they resist, they kick back. Important safety tip, you don't want to be kicked by an ox. It will ruin your day. And so they would kick back against these spikes, and that would train them that resistance was more painful than obedience. And so Jesus told Saul, by resisting, you are kicking against the goads, Saul. You're hurting yourself. I want to bring you into line and under control. And so Saul submitted his will to God's became the apostle Paul, wrote more than half the New Testament and changed literally the course of history in the process. He later wrote in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what it looks like to have our will submitted to God's. So God wants you to bring all of your strength and all of your power under his control. He wants you to stop resisting, stop hurting yourself. Stop kicking against the goads. I have a rule of thumb in ministry. I tend not to trust anybody who's in a ministry leadership position unless they've been broken by God. Because even as followers of Christ, we get so full of ourselves. Now, brokenness might not be pleasant, but it's a good thing. One reason I sit down to preach, I tell George this, is because it's more like Jesus. Jesus sat down to teach. But actually, the real reason is because my back doesn't like long periods of standing. And the reason my back doesn't like long periods of standing is because years ago in an accident, my leg was crushed. It was shattered in an accident when we got hit by a logging truck. And so as a result, I have, you know, I have poor weight distribution and you know, bad, you know, bad balance and everything else. It hurts my back. But 
In that accident, which I've mentioned before, we got hit by a logging truck and our four and a half year old son was killed. My wife and I were in hospital beds and wheelchairs for four months. And I have some gnarly scars on my leg as a result. Now, the leg is filled in pretty nicely with scar tissue, which I think is the body's equivalent of Botox. So it doesn't look that bad. It looks somewhat real and lifelike. But I would tell people uh, outrageous stories about how I got these scars. You know, like, I got this scar from fending off a great white on the barrier reef. And I got this scar in Nam because I don't want people to feel bad. I don't want sympathy. But over the years, I've come to look at my scars differently. I see them as the wounds of God. And I don't hold God personally responsible for the accident, but they remind me, they bring me back to reality of the things I've lost and my hope of what I want to gain. I've learned so much, and these scars remind me of that, that the only thing that lasts forever are relationships in Christ. It's the only thing that that matters. I've learned that I have a legitimate hope of heaven because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can hardly wait to see God face to face and my son as well. I, look, I walk with a limp pretty much all the time now and I just figure that's God's way of reminding me that I need him daily. I need him constantly. Not to lean on my own strength, but to depend on his power. And see, you have a different path to take than I do. I mean, God deals with us differently. And I don't know if you've noticed, but God is so creative in the ways that he has to break us. He has a thousand means at his disposal. So your path is gonna be different, but the end result for God's will is the same, to have our will submitted and aligned to his. The background of this beatitude comes from Psalm 37. It's the Hebrew word for meek, means tremendous power in an individual, but one who has yielded his rights to God. It means explosive energy under control. It's the perfect combination of spiritual poise and power. Well, then the third quality of meekness is gentleness and self-control. That's actually a twofer, it's a combo. My brother-in-law plays for the Beach Boys. Um, He's played with the Beach Boys for years, then he became the leader of the Brian Wilson Band, Brian Wilson's the topic of the movie out right now, Love and Mercy, and within the past year, he rejoined the Beach Boys. So he plays rhythm guitar, sings the high notes that they're, they're famous for. He's never touched a drop of alcohol in his life, which playing with the Beach Boys is quite an accomplishment. He's a strong believer, but he's met lots of famous people, lots of famous musicians, because he's a studio musician, and you know, that's kind of what he does. And when my sister married him, uh, Shortly after that, she met Paul McCartney. Now, Paul McCartney already knew Jeff and was excited to meet his wife. And so Paul McCartney, Sir Paul kissed my sister on the cheek. She said she didn't wash her face for like three weeks. <laughs> but one of, his, one of his favorite stories that he told me not too long ago was uh, about a concert at Madison Square Garden. It was going to be a reunion concert of the band Cream. Now Cream was a British supergroup in the 60s. I was really into Cream. Their name came from, was a short for Cream of the Crop. Consisted of three members. Eric Clapton, the world's most accomplished guitar player. Ginger Baker, the world's greatest drummer. And Jack Bruce on vocals and bass, which is quite a unique gift. Uh, he was hugely talented in his own right. And so with their, pow- their fusion of uh, power, blues, and rock, they influenced music for, for decades after that. I, I was really into Cream. And so when they were talking about a reunion concert at Madison Square Gar- Garden, uh, 
Jack Bruce walked in the meeting, they're discussing, discussing the percentage of the gate, and Jack Bruce figured that Eric Clapton was gonna get the biggest percentage, because he was far and away the most, the most renowned of the, of the band members. And so he put down his sunglasses and he demanded to get 33% of the gate. Eric Clapton said, you're not getting 33%, Jack. Jack Bruce says, I'm not playing unless I get 33% of the gate. Eric Clapton said, you're not getting 33%, you're getting 50% of the gate. Well, that really took him back. And then Ginger Baker said, well, what am I getting? Eric Clapton said, you're getting 50% of the gate. And so they were astounded. And finally, one of them said, well, what are you getting? He said, I get the joy of performing with my friends again. See, he didn't have to hold on to his rights. He had all the money and all the fame he needed. That's a picture of what meekness is about. He just wanted to play for the joy of playing good music. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Circle gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In classic Greek literature, a meek person was neither timid and shy, nor were they a rageaholic. They were, they were in the middle. In addition to this word being used to, dis, to uh, tame a strong and mighty animal, the Greeks used this word to describe a soothing medicine and a refreshing wind. But see, the, the theme remains constant. It's something that's strong and powerful, but is harnessed for good. One who is truly meek doesn't need to fight for his rights or vindicate himself. He doesn't use force or intimidation to get his way. See, meekness doesn't come from ego, it comes from an unshakable confidence in God. So let's take a look at some examples of meekness. First, as represented from the Old Testament, and there are many other examples I could have chosen, but Moses is one I wanna focus on right now. Moses is described in the Bible as a meek man, but he wasn't exactly a pushover. He had such a fiery passion that on one occasion in his youth, he saw an Egyptian master beating a Hebrew slave, and he took matters into his own hands and he killed this, this Egyptian with his own hands. And so God sent him into the wilderness for a 40-year cooling off period. And in Numbers 12, verse 3, it says, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. The NIV uses the word humble, but the word means meek and is translated that way in other versions. Now, when I think of, of Moses, the word that doesn't come to mind is meek. That's not one, that's not a positive, that's not a natural association. Not only did Moses kill an Egyptian oppressor, but then he stood toe to toe with Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet at the time, and he emerged triumphant. He led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. He climbed Mount Sinai, met God face to face. So that doesn't sound like a meek person to me. So why is he described as meek? Well, a little background to this story. Verse one of chapter 12, explains that Moses had married a Cushite woman. This is from modern day Ethiopia. In other words, Moses had married a black African. And his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam were not okay with that idea. And so implied is a bit of racism and prejudice. Because they began to criticize Moses and his leadership. And how did Moses respond to that, to that criticism? Moses chose not to say a word and let God defend him. Have you noticed that God can do a better job of getting even than you can? If you haven't figured that out, you should try it sometime. So God said to Miriam, you like white skin so much? Well, how about a lot of it? 
and he afflicted her with leprosy, which turns the skin white. Moses' wife is black, and you think white's better? Fine. You're going to have even more white skin. You're going to become even more white. And I think that that was a judgment of God that was appropriate to the sin of racial prejudice. Now, when Aaron sees this, he suddenly has a huge change of heart about Moses. He realizes he's been on the wrong side of God. You don't want to do that. And so he quickly becomes Moses' best friend. He begs Moses to pray for Miriam that she might be healed of leprosy. And the first recorded words of Moses in this whole account is to pray for Miriam to be healed. See, he didn't argue. He didn't criticize back. He didn't defend himself. He didn't get angry. He let God defend himself. The first things he said were actually to pray for Miriam and her healing. Well then, of course, representative of the New Testament is Jesus, the greatest example of meekness of all. He described himself as being assertive and aggressive and self-sufficient, right? Not so much. Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, the only two adjectives Jesus ever used to describe himself are gentle and humble. Jesus was the most powerful man who ever lived. Now, he got angry on one occasion. He saw the money changers who were oppressing the poor and ripping them off in the name of religion. He got so angry, he cleansed the temple, drove the money changers out. He rebuked the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He calmed the stormy sea. Jesus had incredible power, but he was always under the Father's control. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Jesus Christ humbled himself and became nothing, even submitting to death on a cross. Why? Not because he was weak, but because he was so strong. When his enemies came to arrest him, Peter pulled out his sword and tried to make the disciples' last stand. He was going to defend Jesus to the death, but Jesus told him to put the sword down. He said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. In other words, that's not how the kingdom comes. And then he said, do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Now, my understanding is a legion was at least 5,000 Roman soldiers. So if you do a little quick math, 12 times 5,000, that's 60,000 angels at Jesus' beck and call. An angel in all his glory is pretty awesome to behold. And there's an old hymn that talks about he could have called 10,000 angels. I don't know about, you know, that song seriously miscalculated the firepower at Jesus' disposal. He could have sent, called down 60,000. I think that would have been overkill. But instead, Jesus submitted himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He had the power to overcome his enemies, but he chose to die on a cross. So let me ask you, which choice took more strength of character? 
Well, let's talk about the reward of meekness. Those who are meek find happiness. That's the first thing. They find happiness. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. And we've seen in this series that word happy or blessed means is makarios. And it's the word used by the Greeks to describe the highest form of happiness. It speaks of blessing, of bliss. Makarios is true happiness. But then secondly, those who are meek receive the inheritance. Matthew 5, 5 says, for they will inherit the earth. You inherit something because somebody dies and includes you in the will. When you inherit something, it's not something that you've earned. It's been something that's been given to you primarily because of relationship. See, Jesus died so that you can receive the inheritance of God. And your inheritance is literally life forever with God. Your inheritance is God himself. Jesus said, if you become like me in character, meek, you'll inherit the earth. See, the world says that the way to get ahead is to drive and promote your own agenda and look out for numero uno. But Jesus warned that just the opposite's true. The Bible says the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. See, when you give up control and you submit to, submit to God, the world is yours. You share in God's inheritance. Now, one note of clarification, being meek doesn't mean there's an absence of passion and conviction. It doesn't mean passivity, especially when it comes to social justice. And there are so many social justice issues right now that believers are dealing with in our culture. But see, how we confront makes all the difference in the world. Not through force, but with a spirit of gentleness and wisdom and meekness. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was the leader of the civil rights movement in this country in the 1960s. He saw at that time the evil of racial prejudice and the social injustice of segregation, and he decided to do something about it. As a pastor, he also understood the power of meekness. And while he preached against injustice, his message was one of peaceful, nonviolent resistance. In the spring of 1963, the civil rights movement had stalled out. Martin Luther King Jr. and other leaders called for a children's march in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham at that time was the most segregated city in the nation. And on Friday, May 3rd, 1963, more than 1,000 children marched out of the Sixth Avenue Baptist Church. Some were less than 10 years old. Others were teenagers, football players and homecoming queens. They were nicely dressed with slacks and white press shirts for the boys and dresses with bows for the girls. They had missed school that day to participate in this march. They want to be there. They're marching for something that their parents had never done for a single day in their lives. In integrated Birmingham where lunch counters and restrooms and water fountains are open to all. They marched because their parents would be arrested and probably lose their jobs if caught. They were peaceful and yet they were spiritual. And what they did though was completely illegal. Their plan was to march into the white business district. And in their path was Bull Connor, the public safety commissioner of Birmingham. Connor was an ex-member of the Ku Klux Klan. He took great delight in keeping blacks in their place. He ordered a barricade of fire hoses and police dogs in the path of the marchers. An enormous crowd of both whites and black spectators lined the streets to see what would happen. The marchers began singing, we shall overcome. Martin Luther King had spoken to them before they left the church that jail was a small price to pay for a good cause. And they know not to fight back against the police. Their efforts will be in vain if the march turns into a riot and becomes violent. 
Bull Connor doesn't want the marchers to get to the white shopping district of Birmingham. He ordered the firefighters to attach hoses to the fire hydrants and spray the marchers at full force if necessary. The water pressure from a fire hose is so great it can remove the bark from trees or mortar from a brick building. It caused too much damage to the expensive storefronts in the business district, so he wants to stop the march before it reaches its destination. He ordered the first blast from the fire hoses to be at half strength. This stopped many of the kids in their tracks. Some simply sat down and let the water batter them, following orders not to be violent but not to retreat either. Connor, realizing that half measures wouldn't work, then gave the order to spray at full strength. Every protester is swept off of his or her feet. Many were swept away down the streets and the sidewalks, their bodies scraping the pavement along the way. Clothing was torn from their bodies, and some pressed, made the mistake of pressing their bodies against the building and became perfect targets. One child said, the water stung like a whip and hit like a cannon. The force of it knocked you down like you weighed only 20 pounds, pushing people like rag dolls. We tried to hold on to the buildings, but it was no use. Then Connor let loose the police dogs. A German shepherd's jaws bite down with 320 pounds of pressure, half the force of a great white shark or a lion. But the German shepherd is much smaller than those predators, and pound for pound, the police dogs are unmatched in their bite force. Bull Connor watched with glee as the German shepherds lunged at the children, ripping away their clothing and tearing into their flesh. Connor was a pear-shaped, balding 65-year-old man with glasses. He appears to be mild-mannered, but he is, in fact, a vicious racist. By 3 p.m. that day, it was all over. The children who weren't arrested limped home, and they're soaked in torn clothing, their bodies bruised with the point-blank blast of a water cannon. They're now just a bunch of kids who have to explain to their angry parents about their ruined clothes and their missed day of school. Bull Connor has won, at least so it seems. But see, among those in Birmingham that day is an Associated Press photographer named Bill Hudson. He's considered to be one of the best in the business, willing to endure any danger to get a good shot. He's ducked bullets during the Korean War and dodged bricks during the Civil Rights Movement. And on this day in Birmingham, Alabama, Bill Hudson takes the photograph of his life. Appropriately, it's in black and white, and he shoots it from just five feet away. The photograph is an image of a police officer looking official in his press shirt and sunglasses, encouraging his German shepherd to take a chunk out of high school student Walter Gadsden's stomach. This is the photo. The very next day, that photo appeared on the front page of the New York Times, three columns above the fold. And when President John F. Kennedy saw this photo, he was disgusted. He called it shameful. And America and the rest of the world was outraged as well. And that photo helped turn the tide in the battle for civil rights. Up to that point, segregation was legal. It was the law of the land throughout much of the South. But the tide was turned, with, and with the signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, segregation was declared illegal in this country forever. See, violence won the day, won the battle that day in Birmingham, but meekness won the war. What a contrast in styles between Bull Connor and Martin Luther King Jr. See, meekness wins, even here on this broken planet. And when it works, a little bit of the kingdom of heaven comes down and touches here. And we can be a part of that. Matthew 16, verse 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his own soul? 
See, the ones who have been given the whole world, the world is their oyster, so to speak, are the ones who are meek before their creator. See, what's the point of gaining happiness now if you don't have it for eternity? You can gain the whole world but forfeit your, your soul. The ones who forfeit your, their souls are the ones who fail to be meek before God. If we fail to be meek, if we fail to submit our will to him, we forfeit our soul. See, here's the deal. Seek meekness before you seek happiness. And as we seek meekness before God, then we get happiness as a result. But we get it through meekness before God, our creator. Why is meekness so important? Well, corollary question is, do you want to go to heaven? You can, but only if you enter the door marked meek. It's the only way to get there. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth after the proud have killed themselves trying to possess it. See, it begins, though, by submitting to God. And if you've never submitted your will to God, you can do that right now. We're going to pray. And I would ask that you consider doing that, giving your life to Jesus. And if you have done this, I'm going to ask that you pray out loud as well as a sign of solidarity and encouragement to those that might be praying for the first time. Will you join me in prayer? God, I believe that Jesus is Lord. And you raised him from the dead. I submit my life to you. Come in and take control. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.